You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where most of us are bleary-eyed and tired because we stayed up too late just to be told nothing's really you know, done yet and woke up, nothing's really done yet, and it's still that way. And, you know, frankly, I am so tired of the whole election thing. If I heard one more commercial for either Alex Garlatos or Peter DeFazio, uh, I think I was about to burst. Uh, of course, that's living it out here in Oregon's 4th Congressional District. We were barraged. Um, needless to say, I, I'm happy that we'll start hearing public service announcements possibly on the radio stations as they were, have, have a bunch of free airtime. <laughs> And haven't had all their airtime bought up by political campaigns. But yeah, I think I've got election fatigue. I just, you know, I know that people are expecting the day after the big election to me spend my whole show on election results and all that stuff and what they mean and all that. And you know, I'm just done. And I think the whole country's kind of done. I get that, you know, as I talk to people, it's like I, I just want to do something else. <laughs> Something that's not COVID, something that's not elections, something that's not about, you know, rioting in downtown Portland or whatever. I just, anything but those three topics. And, and, you know, so I'm I'm probably going to talk about one that may be also on that list for people. I'm going to talk about the fires a little bit today, Um, but about recovery, not about the actual fires and what we're doing to help with recovery. Um, But you know, it's just one of those days where it's it's hard for me to be high energy and stuff. It's just, you know, feeling like you left the limbo. You're just fatigued and ready to be done, you know. And, and, and you know, on top of that, you might notice the background is a little bit different behind me. Um, the wife and I uh, had some painting done in the house here, so I haven't gotten my Pictures hung back up. The room's in shambles. Uh, half the stuff hasn't been put back. <laughs> you know, one of those things where it's like life's in an uproar. Uh, plus, I was gone for a week to Kentucky to visit uh, Elizabeth's family. And, uh, you know, it's really um, great to go back and see family and all that stuff. It's also kind of sad Um went back and and saw Elizabeth's father um, and Linwood is a, a, you know, one of those folks that's from the greatest generation. Uh, In 1930, 
one, I believe it was, uh, all the adult males in his family were killed in a truck versus train accident on their way back from the tobacco market in eastern North Carolina, where he grew up, uh, as one of his uncles decided to try and beat a train across the crossing. Uh, so he lost his father and a lot of his uncles and et cetera. Uh, and that left, you know, the family that was all, you know, spread across this large family farm, um, kind of fending for the farm. And after two years, when his mom and his, him and his, uh, seven siblings couldn't quite lift, you know, he was the oldest at that point, uh, couldn't quite hold up their end got asked to leave the farm, and, and uh, fortunately, she had, had um, teaching certification at the time, so she got a job in an orphanage that was also a farm uh, teaching there, and uh, Linwood was considered too old for the orphanage at 13 um, and had to work the farm, uh, the orphanage dairy farm, uh, and had to get up early in the morning and milk cows before school, and uh, that's the way he, you know, Grew up when we graduated high school, he was drafted straight out of high school. So he was, you know, graduated one day and got his draft certificate the next in 1943 when he was just 17 um, and went went up and went through uh, basic and ended up in the army. Um, got shipped off to Italy as a replacement uh, in the 140 134th. I, I'm going to get the damn division number wrong. Um, division that had gotten shot up in, in the uh, amphibious landing of Salerno, and he came in as a replacement there, and his first action on his first night, first full day after moving in the night before with his new unit was to try and cross the Rapido River at Casino. Um, and then later on, he was involved in the breakout of Anzio, the liberation of Rome, D-Day Southern France, uh, fought through the Vosges Mountains and into uh, Salzburg and across the, the, the Upper Rhine there and into southern Germany, liberated one of the first uh, concentration camps. Um, you know, amazing history of coming in a buck private and, and leaving the Army um, uh, a first sergeant. Uh, you know, he's Bronze Star, Purple Heart, uh, nominated for a Silver Star, but the paperwork never finished through. Um, and yet, uh, as, as Elizabeth walked through the door of his nursing home in Kentucky this last week, he broke down in tears. Um, you know, because you know, one, of, you know, he's at a, he's kind of at an age where um, he frets over things, so we can't tell him we're coming because he won't sleep. Um, and, and, and a 96-year-old that doesn't sleep doesn't do well. Uh, so we showed up by surprise, and, and Elizabeth walked through the door, and he just broke down in tears. Um, bronze Star, Purple Heart, surviving, you know, the Great Depression, you know, as, you know without his dad and all that stuff. Uh, it, you know, it, it was both gratifying and, and sad and uh, it was good to be able to go back. So I appreciate, you know, my board members that covered for me in the board meeting last week. I appreciate the audience um, 
for allowing me to take a couple weeks off uh, the air here. But that's why uh, we went back to Kentucky uh, to see Linwood and uh, see Elizabeth's sister and, and brother-in-law, who, by the way, is was a Dover uh, City policeman and retired. And, you know, typical of some people that retire young, which a lot of folks in law enforcement do because it's such a hard job, just couldn't quite <laughs> deal with being retired. And now he's back as a part-time deputy um, in his in the rural county uh, in Kentucky, uh, where he's, uh, you know, learning the difference between being a city cop and a rural deputy are <laughs> miles apart. Um, and it, it's pretty funny talking to him uh, as he's he just started that job a few weeks back. And of course, I can relate somewhat because, um, you know, I have all these uh, deputies I talk to all the time in the, in the county sheriff's department. Um, so, it was kind of fun to swap stories uh, about, you know, what happens out here versus what's happening there. And, and it, a lot of the same things. Meth is a problem in, in rural Kentucky. Is It's a problem here in, in uh, Oregon. And, uh, you know, domestic violence tends to be some of the worst calls they end up, uh, up on. And it seems like it's always the same, you know, same households or families. You know, people know who's, who it is. Um, and, Casey County, Kentucky is not a very big county, so everybody knows everybody. <laughs> um, you know, 17,000 people versus 375,000. Um, yeah, you kind of know everybody. So, uh, yeah, he's getting to, to do his uh, best uh, uh, Barney Fife out there. <laughs> Except for Greg's not exactly Barney Fife. He makes me look like a little guy. Um, uh, so, uh, he... It was fun going out to visit them. But speaking of deputies, um, we'll get into some of the, the, the stuff I want to talk about. But before we do, I'll just remind folks that even though I may not want to talk about the election, if you want to talk about the election, give me a call. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about because that's what the Bose Nose Show is all about. I appreciate the audience that listens and anyone that wants to call in and talk and have a conversation. That's always better radio than just listening to me blather on here. Uh, give us a call at 646-721-9887. Just press one. And that lets Robin, my producer and call screener, know that you want to get on the conversation again. That's 646-721-9887. Just press one. So Robin knows you want to get in on the air. So um, last week was the, the first initial action. We finalized the action this week. We added four more deputies to Lane County Sheriff's Department. That's the first increase in personnel since we had to start cutting personnel um, in, in deputies way back about 2008 as we started to lose uh, SRS funds. We made even more significant cuts in 2011 and 12 to where, um, you know, the, the patrol division was basically about 21 FTE. Um, so adding four FTE is a 20% increase in their force. Um, so that's, you know, it doesn't seem like four people ought to be that many, but it's a significant thing. And we did that um, using some funds uh, that have been placed in reserves. And I'm kind of proud of why those funds were there. 
and, I, and, and this might be a little bit of inside baseball, but I'm going to tell the story just so you're aware. We get uh, funds from the federal government through something called, it used to be the Secure Rural Schools Act, but you know now it's been re-upped to that in the, in the continuing uh, resolutions that fund the government, seeing they can't pass a budget anymore in Washington, D.C., uh, but they keep adding money you know, in to replace the timber dollars we used to get from harvest back before the spotted owl uh, cut the harvest so badly uh, on federal lands that are inside Lane County in Oregon. And there's two types of federal lands that we get money for, the U.S. Forest Service lands, and that money gets shared with our road fund. And then there's the ONC timber lands that are managed by the Bureau of Land Management that go to our general fund. Now, before I became a commissioner, and even several years afterwards, it was typical of our roads department and, and public works not to separate those funds from the state highway funds we received and other funds. And they kind of did that on purpose because they didn't really want to be able to tell anyone how much of their money they had in reserve was actually federally generated because the state highway fund money cannot be spent on patrol. It can only be spent on the actual roadways and, you know, maintaining and repairing roads. Things like plowing snow, replacing asphalt, reconstructing roads, striping signage, that sort of thing. Patrol is not eligible under the state funding. The federal funds, though, and, and this is based on court decisions and congressional action, can be used for law enforcement patrol of the road systems. So we traditionally have used part of that federal funding to fund our patrol division. And we had been trying to stay at only using what would be equal to actual harvest dollars that we get from the Forest Service, um, which is not a whole lot, a couple million dollars. But there, we, every time we get SRS money, it's more than the harvest. Uh, and we had been setting that money aside in reserves, uh, but not accounting for it separately. I fought the staff in public works and financial staff and finally got a, had to get a board resolution passed. I had to basically write it myself and, and ask the board to pass it, which we did several years ago directing public works to separate that money and count for it separately. So we built up money in a separate account that, that clearly identified it was federally originated money and it built up this reserve. And we're taking $2 million of that and dedicating it to two of those, F, those deputies over the next five years paying for them. And if I hadn't insisted on that accounting change, and fought the staff. I mean, this is like fighting the deep state sort of thing because they did not want to make this change. Um, I would, we would not have had the separated reserves where we could legally fund these two deputy positions. Now, in addition to that, 
when we started losing SRS and then SRS actually ended uh, in 2013, and then it became at least one year refunding, you know, funding of it. And in fact, one year they didn't fund it. 2016, there was no SRS payment. We were on on true harvest dollars. Um, but they keep re-upping it every year, but they keep reducing the amount by 5% from the previous year. So we're still not getting the money we should, and, not, and we're getting actual dollar cuts with no inflation factor involved. Um, but it's still more money than harvest. And one of the things um, we decided when we lost the action, where, where there was so much uncertainty about whether we were going to get more than harvest dollars, was we started treating, and this was a board decision several years back in conjunction with what was then our new uh, county administrator, Steve Mokerheiske. And this was back when it was Faye Stort and Sid Lykin and myself and Pat Farr on the board um, before Joe and, and, and Heather. We made a policy decision that we were going to treat monies above harvest as one-time funds coming into the county, that we weren't going to use that money for ongoing expenses because it was dangerous to do so because we didn't know if we were going to get it the next year. In fact, if we had started doing that, we would have been in big trouble in 2016 when we didn't get any additional funding. And that, that could happen again this year. Continuing resolution hasn't included the SRS yet. So um, we started setting aside that money that built up some general fund reserves. And we were going to use some of those reserves for the courthouse, but you know the courthouse project's kind of sort of sitting dead in the water at the moment with COVID and everything else going on. So we actually pulled $2 million of that money that we had you know, made this policy decision to start setting aside good fiscal policy, treating it as one-time money. And we're using that to fund five years of two more deputies for a total of four deputies over the next five years. What we're hoping to do is to get reimbursed from FEMA for a portion of those deputies because two of them are going to be assigned specifically to patrol upriver McKenzie in the Holiday Farm fire area. Because with over 400 houses destroyed, that's a lot of people that aren't living up there or, or staying up there on a regular basis. And those uh, lack of people being there means that there's very few eyes to watch out for crime. And it just needs to be a higher patrol presence to hold the crime down, particularly as people want to start rebuilding. And, you know, one of the things that's very vulnerable to theft is construction materials, tools, you know, the trucks that your contractors, you know, who's going to want to, to, be the contractor out there and have everything just walk off. Um, so having a patrol presence upriver is important. How much we're going to be able to get reimbursed from FEMA back into the um, the road fund and general fund will depend on you know how FEMA determines what you know how much that's emergency response to the fire. I'm pretty proud of the fact that work I did years ago is now coming to fruition in those four extra FTE. And what I'm really proud of is I also advocated for, and we started a program utilizing, you know, some county funds and some grant funds 
to start something very similar to the CAHOOTS um, mobile mental health crisis response in West Lane County. And it was a two-phase program where the first phase was going to operate only within um, Florence city limits because Florence Police Department could provide backup to the, the mental health crisis responder. And the second phase was to, to expand it out to places like Dune City and Mapleton. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't get to phase two because we couldn't back them up with the Sheriff's Department with only you know, three deputies covering the entire county at any time. Now with those two other deputies that, that not the ones that are going to be upriver in McKenzie, those are going to be assigned to the west side of the county. And because we have those two deputies there, we will be able to expand that mental health crisis response out into, man, everything seems to want to ring on me today. <laughs> I'm turning off ringers here, and then it's my iPad rings. Um, please. Please forgive the interruption, but those two deputies over in the West Lane side are going to allow that mental health response to expand into unincorporated West Lane County, and that is a big thing. You know, and this is exactly what a lot of these people want in these um, rallies that we're seeing. Um, you know, for uh, the. Uh, uh, you know, a Black Lives Matter or whatever you want, you know, the anti-police stuff they're calling for, you know, it shouldn't always be a law enforcement response. You know, some of these people are in, the, you know, just a mental health crisis. This is exactly what they're, they want. But what people have to understand is to make that model work, you have to have police backup. CAHOOTS works because EPD and SPD are there to back them up. Because, and, and I've talked to cahoots, actual cahoots workers from the vans. There's, they're quite often, they are calling for the cops, because sometimes people are beyond a cahoots response, and they need a law enforcement response. So they need that help, and without having that ability to call for backup in a reasonable amount of time, you can't make those mental health response work. So I'm really happy to have these two deputies that are going to allow that mental health response to expand into unincorporated West Lane County. And maybe that'll help, you know, provide a, a, another level of service that we haven't been able to provide over there. Not to mention, you know, if we've got now four more deputies in, in our patrol mix, it's going to probably make the other deputies be able to respond faster in the rest of the county. You know, you might get a little bit faster response time around the Cottage Grove unincorporated areas because they're not having to quite so much focus all the way to Florence or all the way up to Blue River because they know that resident, at least during that shift where there's a resident deputy out there, they can kind of cover some of the other rest of the county. Um, so instead of having three deputies, there'll be five deputies on when those resident deputies are patrolling. So that's it. When you think about those particular time periods, it's not just a 20% increase in force. 
it's a, a you know, 60 some percent, 66 and a, and a third, if you want to get accurate, uh, increase in patrol capacity. So um, a big step, you know, it didn't get much fanfare, you know, a week before the election, you know, who, you know, and, and that was, you know, we're still seeing record numbers of COVID cases in Oregon, even though Lane County started to taper down um, and we're actually doing better this week. Um, it got buried. You know, it's amazing that that story didn't, didn't make, you know, more, um, more news. And speaking of the sheriffs, if you get half a chance, go to the Lane County Sheriff's Facebook page, watch the video from the actual night of the fire. It is eerie, um, and it it just it's. I, I can't say enough about our deputies that night. These guys put their lives on the line to get people out and save their lives. Uh, and, and you know, you see dash cam footage of you know embers bouncing off of trunks, you know, the, the hoods of their their cars and stuff like that, and blowing across the road. And, stuff falling around them. Um, it's, it's crazy. And the guy's talking about, you know, at one point, you know, they're up there and everybody's cell phone dies at the same time. You see everybody, he's, you know, he's, he's, one deputy talks about it. You see everybody suddenly look at their phones because they all stop at the same time. And it, they realize because they're familiar with their communication system, that that meant the fire took out the Mount Hagen uh, repeater site, which is the critical piece of uh, communications infrastructure upriver. Um, you know, one of the things about Lane County with Coast Range and the foothills of the Cascades is there's a lot of deep valleys that cell phone coverage and radio coverage don't get down to unless you have a lot of towers at tops of hills that are, you know, repeater stations that aim down in there. And the Mount Hagen one out uh, near Blue River is a really important one. And, and and I posted a video on my site from the Mount Hagen security cameras of that thing getting overtaken by the fire. Um, and uh, it when it went out, that just killed all communication. So from then on, they were basically operating solo, you know, um, you know, with, you know, voice communication between each other or any direct radio line of sight radio they might have between each other. But um, that's, a, that's a pretty scary place to be in the dark, flames all around you, smoke, wind blowing a gale. Um, those guys just, I can't say enough about the deputies that were up river. And some of them got cut off by the fire for a while too. You know, just incredible work, incredible that we had so few people get harmed in this fire. You know, it's it just, it's, you know, losing over 400 homes and one death in the entire county. Um, those guys did a great job. I can't say enough about our sheriff's department. And I was happy to add those FTE. And that, you know, is a, a big thing for the folks upriver to have that extra coverage, you know, during this time when they, they, they may not be around. One of the things we, we also are doing as a county is we're doing everything we can to make it easier for those folks to get back up there. Um, we are waiving 
temporary RV fees, you know, and, and being very liberal in how people can cite an RV on a lot where they lost a home. Uh, temporary electrical hookup fees we're waiving. Um, we're allowing people to hook back into existing sanitary systems if they're still working with their RVs. Um, you know, so, you know, there's ways that people can get back up there and get on site and, and manage the reconstruction of their homes from their property rather than trying to do it from a hotel in Springfield. Uh, so we're doing everything we can to get people up there. Um, and uh, we spent a significant amount of time in today's board meeting talking about um, how do we resolve some of the sanitary issues, uh, sewer issues in Blue River community where um, it's a kind of an unincorporated town that was already having some issues with failing septic systems, and they really need to build a community um, sewer system of some kind. And uh, how do we how do we make that work within Oregon land use law? Uh, what do we do possibly to help them get funding for that? And uh, and moving that ahead fast, you know, can we move that ahead fast enough that people can start rebuilding? probably going to be a two-step thing where people are going to have to, you know, hook up to their old sanitary systems for a while because it'll probably take us a couple of years to get a new sanitary system up and running up there. But there's all sorts of challenges with that because um, we have to form a new district of some kind, to a special district, which is not an easy thing under Oregon law, and uh, possibly even have to expand the uh, the unincorporated growth boundary of, of Blue River because the best place to put in the new sewer system is Blue River Park, which is just outside the city's boundary limits. Uh, and uh, we'll have to move that into the boundary limits. Um, so it's it gets very uh, you know, detailed as to how you have to do all that, you know, amend a rural comprehensive plan? Do we have to get certain exceptions from statewide planning goals like we had to do with uh, Goshen where we did a goal 14 exception uh, to, to um, change some of the designations in uh, Goshen for employment lands? Uh, uh, and that was you know, a multi-year process just to get through the land use of that. We still haven't put the sewer lines down there. Um, so that, you know you can kind of get a picture of the challenge that Blue River's tiny the tiny community of Blue River is facing. Um, you know, along with that, even the people that are outside of Blue River face a bunch of challenges in reconstruction because Oregon's land use laws, you know, put timelines on. You know, if if you were uh, you know, your house burnt down, it was an older home, and you never had a legal lot verification, um, you have basically 12 months to reconstruct. Well, it's going to take months just to get hazmat certifications, get rid of the debris, get a design done for a new home, you know, go through the building permit process, actually start construction. 12 months disappears really fast. And unfortunately, that 12-month time limit is set in state statute, not in county code. So we actually have to work with our local legislative delegation to, to amend 
state law to at least provide an extension of that for folks that, that got caught in the fires this summer. And we know that um, we're not alone in that effort, that folks in Clackamas County, Marion County, Lynn County, you know, here in Lane County, Douglas County, Jackson County, Lincoln County are all asking for that same law to be changed. So I think there's enough state representatives and senators in all those counties um, to kind of make this a pretty bipartisan effort. So I'm hoping that'll get fixed. But there's still other things um, that we can do to try and help expedite. And one of those things we did today was we added three more FTE, this time using land uh, management division reserves into our building permit program specifically to help expedite building permits. And our folks in land management have already been doing a lot to help out, <clears throat> like this whole idea of waiving the uh, temporary RV permit fees. They also opened a satellite permit office out in Walterville, Leeburg area. Um, and, you know, so that people don't have to travel all the way to Delta Highway to turn in permit plans or ask questions. Um, so we, we're trying to do our best to try and make it as easy as possible. And every vote the board's taken on, you know, whether it's adding the deputies or adding the, the, the new electrical inspector and, and building permit review folks, um, all unanimous votes the board. You know, uh, it's, it's something that's supported by the entire board. So I hope the folks upriver hear that and understand that, you know, we're there um, and we're um, doing our best to make things as easy as possible for you to, to rebuild your homes and uh, not get in the way of you guys getting back to some semblance of normalcy. Um, you know, things will never be the same. We all know that, um, you know, there are things you've lost you'll never replace. It'll take years for the McKenzie uh, Valley to look like it used to look. Um, and we know that, um, but uh, we just don't want to make it even worse by having some um, regulatory function cause you and harm in some way in your, in your process. So we're trying to uh, do everything we can to bulldoze all that stuff out of the way and, and make it as easy as possible for you. Um, so it's really, um, you know, such a focus of the board right now. Um, and I think that's, um, it's a good thing for us to be focused on it. And for me, it stretches into some other things uh, that I'm going to get into here in a second, but I'm going to take a deep breath. Remind folks, this is a call-in show, and you can call in at 646-721-9887, and you just press one so that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the show. And uh, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. If you want to talk election stuff, we can go there. Um, I've got my opinions. I just know one thing. If I voted for it, the opposite happens, <laughs> with the exception of a few things. Um, I did vote for a sheriff. <laughs> and the sheriff 
Yeah, 115,000 votes, very few write-ins or undervotes. Uh, that's pretty impressive. He's a popular guy because um, of the job that his, his department's done with the fire and everything. So here's to the sheriff. Just water, folks. <clears throat> it was getting a little dry. Um, but, you know, um, getting back to that, making it easy for the fire victims to reconstruct, I'm hoping this whole effort of streamlining and simplifying permit processes extends to everyone else in Lane County because we also had a report on Tuesday, our semi-annual report from our public health department. It's a kind of a requirement under our function as the Board of Health, which is something that people may not realize that in Oregon, the county governments are the Board of Health. And it's actually a, a prohibition on municipal powers that they cannot act as Board of Health. The city of Eugene cannot pass health ordinances. That is the purview of the county. It's the one place where we can actually act inside municipal boundaries when it relates to health. And it's our responsibility as the county uh, to do everything from disease prevention work to um, managing communicable disease outbreaks like COVID or the meningitis outbreak on the UVO campus or the measles outbreak a few years back. Um, that's all county responsibility. And part of that is we also are part of the coordinated care organizations that function to implement the state's, um, you know, uh, health plan uh, and the, you know, the Oregon health plan. And that uh, functions part of, you know, Medicaid. And we're the, that, as part of that coordinated care organization, we have to do something called a community health assessment. And of course, the you know, acronym, everybody calls it the CHA. <laughs> but our community health assessment has to be done every couple of years. And part of that is we have to go out and do a survey of um, various stakeholders, you know, what they think big drivers in, in health issues are and are they getting better, staying the same or getting worse. And one of the number one drivers in health in, in this was identified by the survey was lack of affordable housing. Wow. <laughs> surprise, surprise. You know, you know, why is that a big issue in health? Because the stress created by, you know, people being under housing stress where their rents are so much of their income that they don't know if they're going to make rent every month or they're not affording good food or they can't repair a car or they can't afford to get a tooth fixed and stress levels, it hurts people's health. So that was like the number one identification. And 92% of the respondents said it's getting worse. 6% said it's about the same. That's 98% the same or worse. And the number one thing that came up on our survey 
lack of affordable housing. What's one of the things that, that, that drives up housing costs? Lengthy and costly permit reviews. Ah, see how I tied this back to streamlining for the fire? Everything we're doing to, to learn how to streamline building permits for fire victims is going to help us make housing cheaper, faster, more affordable in Lane County because we need every, as Commissioner Farr likes to call it, every front door we can put in in Lane County because the more supply we have, the lower the cost is. I mean, it's cheaper to have a mortgage now than it is to rent in, in our area. I, I know somebody that recently purchased a small home, you know, entry level on the market, $300,000 um, at entry level now, um, but her mortgage is less than her rent was by a, by a significant amount. And that's with property taxes, insurance, and all the escrow stuff included. Now, mind you, she'll have to repair plumbing if it goes bad, not her landlord. But still, um, you know, that, that's, that's a, when it, it's way out of whack. We need more housing. We need that housing to, to prevent any extra dollar in cost in building a home in Lane County. And we need more of it. So, you know, how do we improve health in Lane County? More housing, cheaper housing, less costly housing. How can we as a government make that happen? We need to be cognizant of everything we do that adds a dollar to the cost of a home or apartment building. Is it a new floodplain code that might have more cost involved in it? Is it a construction excise tax that some people are talking about? Is it some kind of carbon and cap and trade tax scheme that will drive the cost of building materials up? Everything we do that adds to that cost. And I'm going to touch on something that might get Robin into the conversation here, because now I'm going to touch on the election a little bit. I couldn't, I, I, how many minutes am I in? Almost 45 minutes, and now I'm going to finally mention the election a little bit. It is unfortunate, I think, that we are seeing so many bond measures and levies on the ballot, and so many of them are passing. I mean, it's unfortunate because it speaks to the fact that it's so difficult to fund certain areas of government. But at the same time, that's a hidden cost in housing. Those things are usually above and beyond the Measure 54750 limitations on taxes. They get tacked on top a lot of times, and it just adds to people's annual tax bills, which makes those, you know, you get a little notice from your bank every year about what your, what your escrow account is and whether your escrow payments are going to go up or down. Well, they generally keep going up because your insurance cost goes up. 
and somebody adds a bunch of serial levies on there. And of course, you get that automatic 3% increase in the value of your house. Uh, fortunately, it's only 3% because if it was the actual market value increase, it'd be a hell of a lot more. Um, and that's thank you measure 4750. Um, so you're seeing your property taxes. And some people that don't have a mortgage, that's their biggest dollar outlay of the year is property taxes. And, that, and that in particular, that seniors a lot of times have paid off a home and they're living on a fixed income of Social Security and maybe some savings or a, a small pension. That tax bill every year is a big deal and can mean the difference between staying in a home they paid for or having to sell it and move into some kind of assisted living or whatever where they don't control future rent increases. And, you know, on a fixed income, you know, you, you see where that's headed. We have to think about everything we do that adds housing price. And, uh, you know, that's really, uh, you know, what we, what we really have to think about. Um, I just say, yeah, Robin just sent me a quick note. Um, yeah, you're welcome, Heather and Sarah, who are thanking me about working on uh, housing stuff. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's something uh, I just, I can, I've continued to do, you know, it's, and I, I mentioned today in our board meeting, one of the things that we shouldn't lose focus on was we almost had a bill through last session that would have allowed accessory dwelling units in rural residential areas, which would be a quick and easy way to add housing stock um, and allow for people to, you know, have a have an aging parent in their backyard in an accessory dwelling unit or move out to the accessory dwelling unit if they're aging out of a house that's two floors into a one-floor ADU and maybe have their kids move into the two-floor house with their kids, you know, and age in place. Um, you know, those sort of options that add front doors um, is always something I want to work on. And I kind of reminded the board to not lose sight of that ADU issue because some of the people upriver in the RR zones might want to build a tiny home maybe first to, to move in and while they're supervising rebuilding of their real home. And unless there's this ADU um, change, they would have to take the tiny home down once they move into the real home. And why waste that? Why waste a temporary uh, housing structure like that? Uh, make it a permanent one. Um, so always trying to find ways to get more housing, cheaper, faster, you know, better, uh, and and get get that supply up. Oregon has a limited housing supply. It's why our housing costs are so high, and how we have so much of our population here in this area that are considered housing burdened. And by housing burdened, it's when you're spending more than 30% of your income on housing, and it. And the percent of our population that's housing burden, I don't have the stat in front of me, uh, is large. But what's even more incredible is the percentage of households in Lane County that actually spend over 60% of their 
monthly income on housing. That's insane. We have got to do something about the cost of housing and housing affordability. It affects people's health. It affects so much. It affects our ability to recruit new businesses to this area. It's a workforce development issue. If we, you know, I've had business, I've had, you know, I've talked to folks uh, at Peace Harbor Hospital about them recruiting doctors there. They've had people they've brought into the area from other areas that eventually quit and left because they couldn't find housing. We need housing. And, and when you talk about the Florence area, some of that rural residential that surrounds Florence, you know, if there are ADUs out there, you know, to provide housing for, you know, and you're talking about a community that has a lot of service industry jobs because it's tourism driven, you know, you need that low cost housing. And a tiny home in somebody's backyard may be just what somebody needs that's working in that service industry as they move up the ladder, get some skills, maybe start managing other people in the service industry, and then they can afford their own home. You know, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a problem here in Oregon, and we need to do everything we can and focus on that. And, and we have to think of every decision we make, is this going to make it easier or harder for people to get housing? Is it going to increase the supply of housing? Is it going to make it faster for somebody to get into a house? Every decision we make is forged to have that focus. And I'll remind my fellow commissioners of that. I think Commissioner Farr does it pretty well too. Um, and we'll just keep pushing that button. So we've got about 10 minutes left on the Bo's Nose Show. And if you want to jump in here, it's 646-721-9887. And just press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, it's 646-721-9887. And just press 1. So um, <clears throat> not a lot of change here in Oregon after the election. Um, still have the same mayor of Portland. Uh, still have uh, you know, super majorities in the legislature, um, maybe one seat less in both houses, still up in the air, a couple of very close races. Um, it's kind of surprised at some of the close races. I, I um, truly thought that um, Melissa Cribbins was going to win that Senate race on the coast because um, I know her personally. I know how hard a worker and, and, and and all she is, um, and that one's too close to call right now. My friend Boomer Wright did win his race, um, and I'm really happy about that down there on the coast, and he was one of those pickups in the House um, for the Republicans. Um, so it'll be interesting. Not a lot of change there, so working with a lot of some of the same people um, and work with those folks through AOC. They see me a lot on public safety issues. I will say that um, the passage of Measure 110 is going to make my job harder. I don't know if people didn't read that carefully, didn't understand the, what it really does. Um, it truly does not fund treatment. It funds assessment of people, not the actual residential treatment. Um, it uh, makes it 
very difficult to get people into treatment because one of the greatest, and I've talked about this in the past, one of the greatest things we do here in Lane County is something called treatment court. And the poodles agree with me. Uh, I think your show just went to the dogs. Yeah, I think it did. I think Elizabeth must have just pulled up or something. Uh, so uh, treatment courts are incredible tools, but they only work because there's a felony kind of hanging over people's head. And what Measure 110 did was reduce a lot of felony drug crimes to misdemeanors. Well, they did that already to some extent with a lot of drug crimes with a previous bill. And that already hurt our intake of folks to treatment court. <laughs> I'm waiting for them to start singing. Squirrel. Yeah, squirrel. Oh, yeah. Uh, we are going to the dogs. But uh, adding even more misdemeanors, those folks don't care when they're in, when they're in full-blown addiction. Getting sentenced to a jail sentence or a fine that they can't pay, they don't care. But if they think they're going to have to go to prison where they won't have access to drugs and get, you know, you know, go through that kind of withdrawal and, and into that situation for years, doing a pre-sentencing downward departure into treatment court where they can wipe that felony arrest away. Basically, it won't even show up on their record if they, if they complete the treatment. And it's usually a one-year to two-year commitment where they go in, they usually go into jail for 60 to 90 days to dry up, go into a residential treatment facility, come back out, and they usually are in like a day, um, day release um, in our community corrections system for a while, and then they might get out to sponsors into one of their facilities, um, you know, and work on all the issues that why they became addicted, dealing with their addictions, dealing with their relationships, learning life skills. At the end of all this, folks that graduate those programs have a really great success rate, very low rate of going back to the drugs and back to a life of crime. And if they don't make it through the program, they end up going to prison. Um, and that's the stick. But that stick, you know, I've gone to those treatment court graduations. And to a person, those people talk about how if you didn't have that felony hanging over my head, I would never have entered treatment court. And I would be dead on the street somewhere right now. And I hear the parents test, you know, speak up you know, in, in those graduations about how if it weren't for treatment court, their son or daughter would be dead and treatment court gave them that son or daughter back. They had lost that person to addiction. And it, it on and on and on. I hear that husbands talking about wives, wives talking about husbands, daughters and sons talking about parents. It works. And 110 took away that tool. And it's going to really hurt our ability to turn some people around, get them on things like medically assisted treatment that is truly effective with opioids. And folks in addiction 
they're suffering, a, you know, a mental illness and, and a physical illness, and they are not going to voluntarily stop their addiction. They have to be forced into it for the most part, or they have to hit the proverbial bottom, so to speak. You know, you hear that talked about all the time. They have to hit bottom. Well, most, when you have to lift somebody up from the bottom rather than somewhere on the way down, that's a lot bigger lift. When you're taking somebody that's chronically homeless maybe and, has, you know, is, you know, into full-blown addiction, mental crisis, damaged their brain by that point, damaged their bodies, now they have a bunch of physical ailments too. That's a big lift to take that person. But if you catch somebody when they're just at the point where they've started serious crimes to support their addiction before they hit that rock bottom and intervene with a treatment court, that's not such a big lift to get those people back into society, back to their families, back into, you know, producing for society. Well, I think that the... uh... Sorry to jump in there. That documentary okay. by Como TV, um, Seattle is dying, was a very good example of what you're talking about. Oh yeah, when the interviews they have with some of those guys on the streets, like I, yeah, the one guy, I'm the king of the world, because <laughs> he knows the police can't touch him. Um, you know, at that point, and I think we just basically handed that tool through Measure 110 out to even more people. You know. There's a reason why they're not prosecuting a lot of the rioters, because if it's a misdemeanor charge, it's not worth it. We don't have the jail space right now. We had to reduce our jail capacity by almost 50% for COVID. We're not going to put misdemeanor folks in the jail right now when we've got folks on felony, you know, with felonies, dangerous criminals. You know, we, we release people based on a matrix. So, you know, why even bother going through prosecution on that, you know, at some point? So um, I think it was sold as this thing that was going to provide treatment, and really all it's going to do is allow people to remain in addiction to the point where they're going to really damage themselves. And it's un, it's an unfortunate um you know, that people only read ballot titles and don't read the whole thing and don't educate themselves before they vote. Because I never think that would have passed if people truly understood what it was going to do. So, well, I think we're just about out of time on the Bo's Nose show here. Um, I, I appreciate everybody for listening. Uh, you know, we, we really like our audience and know that, you know, you don't have to listen to the Bo's Nose show. Uh, fortunately it's commercial free at least and I hope people learn something as they listen and anytime just remember it's a call in show but we'll be back next week coming to you live from beautiful downtown Amara on Veterans Day so maybe we'll talk a little bit more about my father-in-law Limwood and I'll tell maybe a little bit more of his story in detail because it's an incredible story and it's something, in fact, I might even play a little bit of a recording of an interview he did with Bill London um, several years ago about his experiences in, in World War II. Um, we're losing the greatest generation. 
daily, and uh, we should remember those folks and all of our veterans at, on Veterans Day. Have a great week, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.